I don't think I've ever wanted as much to be free as I've longed to be known. And of the things that I hate as I look at my life, the worst is my being alone. I remember the first time I heard the song, and still every time that I hear it, it, it gives me goosebumps and can so easily bring tears to my eyes. Uh, the song was written by Don Schaefer in 1994, and Don is a part of a group called uh, Waterdeep. I don't know if you know, if you've ever heard of the group Waterdeep. It's based out of Lawrence, Kansas. Um, however, the first time I heard the song, it wasn't in 1994, and it wasn't in Lawrence. Um, rather, it was 12 years later in 2006, and it was in Chicago. Um, I was in graduate school, and I was hanging out with some friends in Owens, one of the dormitories at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, where I was uh, going to school. And we were talking, and all of a sudden, you know, this song came on. There's a laptop sitting on the coffee table kind of playing music, and this song came on. I had never heard it before. But from the opening notes, it just arrested my attention. It touched a chord within me. It evoked something that I, I hadn't fully been able to articulate, and I don't even know if I fully even felt until I began to listen to the lyrics. The song paints this picture of this couple that's sitting on this beach on a warm afternoon, and the woman asks, Aaron, have you ever had a burning in your chest that just makes you want to be free? You know, and she waits so long to reply to this question that, you know, she eventually sort of forgets that she's even asked. And finally he says, Kelly, I don't think I've ever wanted as much to be free as I've longed to be known. As I've longed to be known. And he stops there, though. He doesn't go on and share all the rest that's in his heart. He says he keeps the rest of his words from her ears because he thinks she might not understand. And, And she sits there in silence as well because she doesn't know how to reply. When she realizes that that burning in her chest that she feels that she mistook for this longing to be free is really a longing to be known. And, and you know, he hadn't meant to evoke this response in her, but, but this reply that he gave, it called something alive within her. And, you know, when, when I was in this song, I mean, or when I first heard the song in seminary, I hadn't met Rachel yet. You know, it was, this was, you know, four years before Rachel and I would meet and we would fall in love. And so I'm in this moment. I'm single. I'm searching. I'm, I'm you know, feeling the loss of relationship. But even now, as, as someone who's married, listening to the song, I realized that, that Aaron and Kelly, the characters in the song, they're not alone. In fact, they're, they're a couple. They're on the beach. And yet they still feel this longing to be known. And you see, even in, in marriages, in the closest of relationships, at times, we still feel the sense of, of they wouldn't understand. Uh, of even if I could fully articulate what I'm feeling, that the other person wouldn't understand. And you know, it's actually the best of relationships that make us feel that the most acutely. Because if your relationship, whether it's a friendship or a marriage, is, is on the rocks or it's struggling, you could always blame this sort of sense of, of being lonely or being alone to the fact, well, our relationship just isn't that good. But in the moments when our relationships are the best, and yet we still have this sense that there's this, this lonesomeness, this desire to be known, this ability to not fully be understood, can't fully be grasped, that we feel that sense of loneliness most acutely. We sense that there's a loneliness, a longing in our hearts that not even the best of human relationships can fulfill. And we feel this loneliness, especially during the Christmas holidays, and especially at times of great national tragedy, like we experienced this Friday. 
Not long ago, I was having coffee with someone, and as we were getting ready to leave, uh, he looked at me and he said, I just want to say one thing before we go, Bill. He said, I'm alone and I feel alone. I'm alone and I feel alone. In the 400 years of silence between when the last prophet spoke in the Old Testament and between when Jesus was born, I'm sure that many in Israel felt this longing, this aloneness. Was this whole Messiah thing really just kind of an empty conspiracy theory that was never going to come true? Was anyone really going to come for them? Would God ever speak again? And although the Israelites experienced silence, they had not been left alone. And neither have we. As we examine this conspiracy of love in Paul's letter to the Romans this morning, we're going to see that Christmas means that we are never alone because the Spirit prays for us. Christmas means that we are never alone because the Spirit is praying with us and for us. As Paul continues his letter to the Romans, he writes these words in Romans chapter 8, in verse 26 and 27. And this is the passage we're going to look at this morning. Hear the word of God. Paul writes, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. For the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. This morning, as we look at this passage, we're going to see, we're going to explore three questions together. We're going to look at why does the Spirit pray for us? How does the Spirit pray for us? And what does the Spirit pray for us? So so why, how, and what does the Spirit pray for us? And if you have a Bible with you this morning, whether on your phone or uh, in print, I would encourage you to take it out and turn to to Romans chapter 8. Romans comes, it's in the New Testament. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the book of Acts. And then you have Romans. In the book of Romans, it's a letter. It's an extended letter that Paul has written to the church in Rome. It's this young church in a major metropolitan city. And Paul has actually yet had the opportunity. He hasn't yet had the opportunity to go and visit this church. And he says at the beginning of the letter that I'm longing to come and visit you. I want to encourage you. I want to be with you. But in the meantime, I'm writing you this letter. And all throughout the season of Advent, which is a season of waiting and anticipation, of longing and remembrance... We have been slowing down together and looking closely at Romans chapter 8, which reveals kind of the story behind the story of Christmas, this conspiracy of love. And each week we've begun to see a bit more of what Christmas means for us. First we saw that Christmas means that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And then we saw that Christmas means that slaves can become sons. Last week, Tom showed us that Christmas means that we don't have to wait forever. And this morning, we're going to see that Christmas means that we are never alone because the Spirit prays with us and for us. Which brings us to our first question, why does the Spirit pray for us? Well, Paul says in the beginning of verse 26, he says, why does the Spirit pray for us? He says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. The Spirit prays for us because we are weak. And Paul is with that word likewise, is linking us back to the previous section, the section that we looked at last week if you were here. Paul's linking us to the hope, the hope that he has been describing in the previous verses, this hope that is not seen but is the hope that we wait for with patience, the hope that sustains us in our waiting. 
And Paul is saying, likewise, in the same way that that hope sustains us, the Holy Spirit comes to our aid, sustaining us and helping us in our weakness. So what is this weakness that we experience? When Paul says we need, we need this help from the Spirit because we are weak, what is that weakness? Well, the word is used in other places uh, in the New Testament to describe diseases or infirmities. So Jesus will talk about, will talk about Jesus healing the, the weak or those who have disease or that they're infirm. But the word in other places just talks about um, a general kind of weakness, a lack of confidence or a feeling of inadequacy. And this is kind of what Paul is getting at here. And I think New Testament scholar Douglas Moo captures this so well. He explains that the weakness refers to the totality of the human condition, the creatureliness that we are characterized by, even as children of God in this period of overlap between what is is now and what is coming, between the already and the not yet. This isn't anything particular that's wrong with us. It's just the weakness that we have as human beings, that we aren't God, that we lack certain knowledge and understanding. Paul says we experience this weakness, we feel this inadequacy, especially as we seek to pray. We we feel these groans. Paul's been talking about the groaning of all of creation, the groaning that we feel as Christians. And as we experience that groaning, we feel inadequate in our prayers. How do we pray? He says we don't know how to pray for as we ought. We feel this experience. I think we all feel this. I mean, how do you pray when you're sitting in your living room, as I was on, on Friday morning, and my phone started to light up with alerts saying there was this, a shooting at an elementary school in Connecticut. And I remember Friday morning, it was my day off. I was sitting, reading uh, a great book and drinking a cup of coffee, and I, I, my phone started buzzing, and I looked at this, and so I, I pulled out the computer and started watching news reports. And at first, it didn't seem like it was all that bad. I mean, I remember kind of the local news helicopter circling over the school, and it seemed like things were kind of under control. There wasn't reports of lots of ambulances going everywhere. And I thought, well, maybe, maybe, just maybe, this is just kind of media sensationalism. This isn't really that big of a deal. It's going to turn out to be a minor thing. But as the day went on, as I'm sure all of you experienced this as well, with each report, with each new alert that popped up on my phone, with each new news report I heard on the radio or saw on TV, the story just got worse and worse and worse. I mean, the reason there weren't lots of ambulances going away from the scene is there weren't many people alive to take to the hospital. And Rachel and I were together that whole day and, and watching the TV and the coffee shop and listening to the radio and following on our phones, I think we both just felt numb. And I remember Rachel just repeating multiple times throughout the day that this is just a really bad day. This is a really bad day. This is an awful day. You know, and I don't think either of us completely knew how to talk to one another about what was happening, much less how do you even begin to pray for something like this? You see, we live in this groaning, broken creation, and often we just don't know how to pray. Do you feel that? (laughs) We just don't know what to say or how to put into words what we're feeling. I mean, how do you pray in a world where six- and seven-year-old boys and girls are senselessly murdered? I mean, we can't. We can't pray on our own. But the Spirit is there helping us. 
We are weak, but we are not alone. And the word translated help in this verse, I I love this. It's a rich picture, and it pictures someone helping another carrying a heavy load. That's the picture of what the Spirit is doing for us. It's someone helping another carry this heavy load. The Spirit helps us. The Spirit carries this load that is too heavy for us to carry on our own. In fact, it's only used one other time in the New Testament, and it's, it's interesting where it occurs. It occurs in the story of Mary and Martha. If you remember this story from the New Testament where uh, Jesus comes to visit Mary and Martha, and Martha is sitting at Jesus' feet, and Mary, uh, or Martha is frustrated that, uh, that Mary's not helping her. And he's, that's the same word. She says to Jesus, why isn't, you know, why isn't Mary helping me? Um, she felt like she had this heavy load of preparing a meal and she wasn't having enough help. The Spirit helps us. He carries that load. And what's interesting, too, is this word is in the present tense, which means that it isn't just sort of occasionally or when things get really bad or every once in a while, but the Spirit is constantly, it's an ongoing, continuous act of the Spirit helping us. Not just when we really need it, but continuously, all the time. And you know, it isn't just in the tragic moments of national horror, but also in the moments of quiet desperation and pain that we feel every day. In the pain of a marriage that after decades still doesn't seem like it's getting any better. In the moments when another month passes and you're still not pregnant. In the moments when another year passes and you're still not married. In the moments when you experience yet another rejection by one of your classmates at school. In the moments of opening yet another email confirming that yes, the position has already been filled. The Spirit is there helping us in those moments. And in every moment, when we don't know how to pray, when the groanings are too deep for words. Okay, so this is why the Spirit prays for us, because we are weak. But how does the Spirit pray for us? How does the Spirit come alongside and pray for us? If you look at the second half of verse 26, we get a glimpse of it. Paul says, The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. How does the Spirit intercede for us in these moments? He intercedes with these groanings that are too deep even for words to begin to express. And what are these groanings that Paul refers to here? In the previous section, we saw that the groanings um, were this response to the brokenness and bondage uh, and evil that had entered the world through sin and rebellion. In Romans 8.22, if you just move back a couple of sections, a couple of verses up, you see in Romans 8.22 that the whole natural order, all of creation, even the rocks and the trees and the dirt and the flowers, that everything is groaning. And then in the next verse, Paul adds that we too, we too, those of us who have been adopted as sons and daughters, we groan also. And now here in verse 26, we hear that the Spirit groans along with creation. It groans along with us. So the Spirit's groanings become, our, our groanings become the Spirit's groanings. And even though we may not know how to pray or what to pray in these moments, the Spirit takes up our groaning. Our groaning becomes His. He intercedes when words are inadequate. Um, Now, as the NIV Study Bible rightly puts it, he says, this does not refer to the speaking in tongues, 
Um, since what Paul points out here is, is, applies to all Christians. This groaning happens for all Christians. And in, in, if you look in 1 Corinthians 12, 30, only some Christians have this gift of tongues that Paul talks about. But these groanings are groans that the Spirit groans on our behalf. And they aren't wordless in the sense um, that they can't be spoken, but they're beyond human language. They're beyond what words can express. I love the way that uh, the great 20th century New Testament scholar, F.F. Bruce, he put it this way. He says, groaning covers those longings and aspirations which well up from the depths of our spirits and cannot be imprisoned with the confines of everyday words. In such prayer, it is the spirit dwelling in us who prays in his mind immediately is read by the Father to whom the prayer is addressed. You see, because we have received the spirit of adoption, we can cry, Abba, Father, and trust that the very spirit of adoption who dwells within us is interceding for us, discerning our deepest needs, our deepest longings, our deepest pains, our deepest hurts, and is communicating them directly to the Father. Even where we're not sure what our deepest longings, feelings, needs are. You know, the Spirit acts as our translator, communicating what we cannot. And several years ago, I don't know if you've ever had an opportunity to work with a translator, but several years ago, I had the opportunity to go to um, northeastern Kenya with uh, our pastor of Extension Ministries, Jeanette Thomas. We went to do some training of some pastors who were doing church planting in northeastern Kenya. And I was doing these sessions, teaching this, this class, but I, I didn't speak. There was like four or five different languages represented, and I didn't speak any of them. Um, and so there was actually multiple translators translating simultaneously what I was speaking. And I don't know if you've ever had that experience of, of working through a translator, um, but it's an, odd, it's an odd experience. It can feel kind of disjointed as you speak, and then you, you wait, and the different translators are, are translating um, and actually, sometimes you're wondering, you, you say something, and then they keep talking and for going on and on. You're like, did I say all that? I mean, but when you're working with a translator, you have to trust that the translator, A, understands what you're saying, and then is able to accurately communicate that to your, the people you're speaking to. And if you don't have that trust, the communication doesn't work well. But the Spirit is the perfect translator who is able to take those groanings that are too deep for words and translate them perfectly to the Father so that even when we don't understand how we're to pray or what to say or how we can communicate, that the Spirit is acting as this perfect translator, bringing these things to life, making it real to the Father. As our translator, the Spirit is not only able to communicate what we are thinking and feeling perfectly to the Father, but he is also able to do something a human translator could never do, and that is explain what we can't put into words. He is able to translate what is too deep for words. On Friday afternoon, Pastor Kevin DeYoung, who's one I follow uh, on Twitter, wrestling with these events, he just tweeted, he says, the spirit must intercede with groans too deep for words because there are no words to describe the horror of murdered children. In moments like these, we need a translator. We need an intercessor. We need someone who can help us. So why does the spirit pray on our behalf? Because we are weak. Well, how does the spirit pray on our behalf with these groanings that are too deep for words? But then what does the Spirit pray for on our behalf? What's this, this final question? What does the Spirit pray for on our behalf? 
And when we look at verse 27, we discover that the Spirit is not only groaning with us, but that he is groaning with us for our good. What does the Spirit pray for us? He prays God's will for us. He prays that God's will would be done. So Paul writes in verse 27, he says, And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. You see, this is our great confidence in prayer, that the Spirit is praying God's will for us, even when we have no idea what God's will is. The Spirit is interceding on our behalf, praying God's will for us, praying what is best for us. And we're going to be looking into this a lot more next week as we look into Romans uh, 8, 28 through 30 and this idea of all things working together for the good of those who love God. That's going to be next week. However, there are several key things I want us to note here this morning. First, when Paul uses the language of saints, he says he intercedes for the saints here. Uh, that, that language of saints just means those who are set apart. This isn't some special group of super Christians or special people. This is just God's people, his children. The word simply means those who are set apart, who are holy, who are called. This is everyone who has been adopted as a son or a daughter who cries, Abba, Father. This is what we saw earlier in the text. And second, when Paul, who is Paul referring to when he mentions he who searches hearts? So he says it's the he who searches hearts is the one uh, who the Spirit intercedes for. So what is this idea of the one who searches hearts? Well, the one who searches hearts is God the Father. For example, if you look in the Old Testament, this language of the searcher of hearts, of the one who searches hearts, is used often. So David can say to his son Solomon in, in 1 Chronicles 28, And you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your fathers and serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind, for the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. Or if you look into the, some of the prophets, the prophet Jeremiah uh, says this, where God basically, he identifies himself as the searcher of hearts. In Jeremiah 17.10, he says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. But I think more clearly than, than anywhere else, we see this in Psalm 139, where the psalmist declares, O oh Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, you, O Lord, know it all together. This idea of God is the searcher of hearts. He knows us intimately. Now, you know, at the beginning we talked about this longing to be known, but I can also imagine some of you might be thinking right now, I don't know if I want to be known quite that well. God knows everything about me, my going in and out and my sitting and the words that are going to come out of my mouth before I do. Do we really want to be known that well? A while ago, I ran across a little cartoon. Um, it was in a cartoon strip called, I don't know if you've seen these, they're called Coffee with Jesus. And uh, it has Jesus sitting there having coffee with, uh, with this guy, Carl. And in the first panel, Carl says to Jesus, sometimes I could use a little privacy, Jesus. I mean, do you have to be there always? And Jesus replies, even to the end of the age, Carl. And Carl says, that's disturbing. And Jesus says, only when you're trying to hide, Carl. Um, only when you're trying to hide. As sons and daughters who have a father who searches hearts, this is not something that is a fear of judgment, but is a great hope, a great comfort. 
that someone knows us, knows us better than we know ourselves. See, even when we are a mystery to ourselves, do you ever feel like that? Like, I don't even know what I'm feeling, right? I don't even understand myself. Why do I do the things that I do? Why do I struggle with the things that I struggle with? Even when we're a mystery to ourselves, God understands and is working for your best according to his will, which brings us to the third important thing to notice in these verses. When the Spirit prays for us, God always answers his prayer in the affirmative because the Spirit is always praying according to God's will because he is God. The Spirit himself is God. So when he prays according to his will, he's praying according to God's will. So the Spirit, when he's praying for us, doesn't have to add sort of Lord willing to the ends of his prayers because he is, in fact, God, right? He says, me willing, you know, the Lord willing do this. When the Spirit intercedes for us according to God's will... Ultimately, he's interceding for us to become like Christ. And that's what we're going to see fully in this next text that we're looking at next week, that this goal is glorified Christ-likeness. This is ultimately God's will for all of his children. So in our weakness, we do not know how to pray according to God's will for us. In our need, though, the indwelling of the Spirit is our helper. He prays according to the will of God, for he knows that will. There's a great line at the end of a a prayer from the church father, Chrysostom. Chrysostom was a great preacher uh, in the early church. Uh, He was called the Golden Tongue. And he has a great uh, prayer. And at the end of it, it's in the Anglican prayer book. And there's a, a great line in it that says, Grant our desires and petitions as may be best for us. Grant our desires and petitions as may be best for us. I love that. I pray that so often because I recognize that my desires, my requests, my petitions, so often it's like, God, I'm praying according to, to the best that I can understand, but I know that I may be asking for things that are, that are so bad for me. So please, in your mercy, fulfill these desires, these longings, these positions as would be best for me, as would be best for my family, as would be best for our city, for this church. Grant our desires and petitions as may be best for us. And the great hope that we have is because the Spirit is interceding, is praying for us, is praying with us according to God's will, that really we don't even have to vocalize that. He is going to grant those desires and positions as is best for us. I think that Eugene Peterson, uh, in the message, in his paraphrase, perfectly really sums up all that we've kind of brought out and looked at in this text this morning. I just wanted to read you how he, how, let's listen to how Eugene Peter paraphrases this, uh, this text. These two verses. He says, meanwhile, the moment we get tired in the waiting, the moment we get tired in the waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting. In the moment we get tired in the waiting, God's spirit is right alongside us to help us. If we don't know how or what to pray, it doesn't matter. He does our praying in and for us, making our prayer out of wordless sighs and our aching groans. He knows us far better than we know ourselves, knows our pregnant condition, and keeps us present before God. I love that picture. When we get tired in the waiting, the Spirit is with us. So what does this all mean for us as we go back to work and school this week? Well, first, it means that our weakness, our inadequacy, is an opportunity for God's glory. 
Rather than causing us to despair, our weakness, these moments of groaning, should cause us to rejoice in God who is our help. I love in Paul, in another letter, in 2 Corinthians 12, he says, But Jesus said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. It's the same exact word that's used here in Romans. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So the Spirit's power is made perfect in our weakness. Glory in the Spirit's strength. When you feel weak, when you feel those groanings that are too deep for words, glory in the fact that the Spirit is interceding for you, that His strength is being made perfect in the midst of your weakness. Second, it means that we are heard even when we can't speak. That we are heard even when we can't speak. You are never voiceless when the Spirit intercedes for you making your deepest groaning into words that are perfectly understandable to your Heavenly Father. So trust the translator. Trust that he's speaking the things that maybe you don't even know that you're feeling. You can't put into words. And third, it means that we are known better than we know ourselves, that God knows you better, that he loves you more than you can possibly know. So rest in his goodwill. He will grant your desires and your petitions as is best for you. The cross is the demonstration that even though we don't understand, that we know that God is not far off, but that he has come near and that he is working for our good. Christmas means that we are never alone. We have a great hope in the midst of great groaning. As one writer put it, he says, For Paul, groaning and hope are two, t- two sides of the same coin. If we do not groan, then hope is meaningless to us. Whatever it means for the Spirit of God to groan, it surely indicates that he is standing beside us and bearing our sorrows up to heaven. God's Spirit is groaning is the ultimate sign that Christ is with us, that he is surely with us even to the very end of the age. See, Christmas means that we are never alone. The final verse uh, of the song that we heard John and Mindy sing before the message goes like this. It said, as they headed home, neither of them could speak a word. And they held their own spirits to blame. I love that. They felt the inadequacy of their own spirits to communicate. They held their own spirits to blame. But the pulse of the waves, they both turned around. Surely someone was calling their name. Someone was calling their name. That someone who is calling them is the one who has called us, who is calling you this morning. It's the very Spirit of God who is groaning inside of you. At Christmas, we are reminded that Jesus came, that God has dwelt with us, and now through the Spirit dwells in us. Christmas means that we are never alone. However, this can only be true because Jesus bore the aloneness that was rightly ours. You see, when you begin to study the Bible, when you look at it from the very, very beginning all the way to the very end, and and you ask the idea about what is sin, what's at the essence of sin, what does it really do? Fundamental throughout all the pages of Scripture, what sin does at a fundamental level is it divides, it separates, it tears apart, it isolates 
And so last week in, in Romans chapter 8 of that chapter, we saw that the creation is groaning. So in sin, it separates us from creation. It separates us from one another. It separates us from God. Sin makes us lonely. It alienates us from one another. It fragments and divides people along racial lines, political lines, ethnic, economic, cultural. It divides. I love at the end, of, in, in C.S. Lewis's great little book, The Great Divorce, he pictures hell as a place where people are moving further and further and further apart from one another. They just keep building houses, and then they get angry with their neighbors, and they build a little further away. That hell is this ever-increasing isolation and aloneness. You see, Jesus, at the end of the life, his life, was abandoned and alone, betrayed and denied by his closest friends. And even on the cross, his father turns his face away from him. But you see, Jesus was alone on the cross so that you and I would never have to be alone again. Christmas, the good news of Christmas, means that we are never alone. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we rejoice that we are never alone if we have been adopted as your sons and daughters that your spirit dwells within us and we can cry abba father that you are near to us no matter what that our aloneness can never overtake us that when we feel that inadequacy to express ourselves to one another to our family to to you even that your spirit is at work even in those moments especially in those moments Lord, make that real to us during this Christmas season. We ask this in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen.